Good morning, Hope Church. How's everybody doing? Good. Fantastic. I like to hear that. I like to hear that. Everybody excited to be here today? I'm excited to be here today. It's always a, a, a privilege to share from God's Word, and uh, certainly today is no exception. I'm especially excited to uh, continue in our series of messages, the Word of God, and uh, this is the second week in our exploration of this book that we call the Bible. Now, if you recall last week, I referenced another book that we, I say we, myself and my climbing partner, had put a lot of faith in while climbing out in the western United States. And I had a picture of that last week that I intended to share with you guys. But my lack of tech skills precluded me from being able to share that picture. But I did look to someone who knows computers and images much better than I. And I do have that picture for you today. So this is A Climber's Guide to the Teton Range. And I share this picture with you for a number of reasons. First, just to prove that it can be done. I wanted to prove that we could actually do it. The second is to uh, point out, you know, the beauty of that area. I mentioned that last week that this is just spectacular out there in Wyoming. If you guys have ever been out there, you know. If you haven't, please go because that is just incredible. Now, the third and final point that I wanted to bring out by showing this book is I wanted to ask a question about that book. See, we put our trust in that climber's guide. We literally staked our lives on it. The question, how did we know that that book contained all of the information that we needed? I mean, what if something was left out? The results of that could mean being hopelessly lost. Or worse yet, the results could have been disastrous. We could have literally died if there was some important information that was left out of that book. What if, what if there was information in that book that didn't belong? That gave us false information that, that just didn't make sense. Once again, the result would be confusion about where to go, about what to do, about what to believe. Again, the results could have been disastrous. Have you ever wondered that about the Bible? I mean, here we have the scriptures, right? 66 books written by about 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. No other book like it, right? How can we be sure that we have the true and complete Word of God. If we're going to place our faith and trust in this book, we must know with certainty which writings belong and which do not. The Apostle Peter in 2 Timothy tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. If that is true, then we must 
be sure that what we have in the Bible here before us today is complete. We must understand what is referred to as the canon of Scripture. And I don't mean that big thing that shoots cannonballs and goes boom. I'm talking really about the list of books that belong in the Bible. And this is, this is an important question. These are the words by which we live our lives. Moses told the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 32, they are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. These words are our life. To add to them, to add writings to God's word that don't belong, or to subtract from God's words would prevent us from obeying completely what God is telling us in his word. Moses, again, from Deuteronomy chapter 4, says, Do not add to what I command to you, and do not subtract to it from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I gave you. So a correct understanding of the makeup of our Bible is critical. It's critical. And that is what we're going to get to this morning. Now this word canon, as I said before, is not the big thing that goes boom. But it's a word that's used to describe the inspired words of God. The God-breathed words. This word comes from the Greek word canon, makes sense, right? And the Hebrew word kana, both of which signify a measuring rod, right? This is the standard by which individual books were measured to, discern, to determine whether or not they were inspired, whether or not they were God-breathed. And I just want to take a moment here to, to make a note of the fact that, that no man... No man or no council had the authority to cause a book to be inspired. No. All they did was recognize the books that were inspired. Books that were God-breathed. And they were typically able to discern this soon after they were authored. Now, I titled this message, The Word of God, How Did We Get Here?, because we need to know how these 66 books that we have in our Bible, how they came together. And necessarily included in our discussion will be the additional books that we find in the Catholic Bible. Those so-called apocryphal books that we do not consider to be part of the canon. I know that there are some here that may have a Catholic background. And you may have asked that question already. I'm glad you asked because we're going to answer that question. And we're going to come to understand why we do not consider them to be part of the canon of Scripture as we continue this morning. So let's begin by looking at the canonicity of the Old Testament. The 39 books that we see in our Old Testament here today. How did the Old Testament come together? And how do we know it's complete as we see it? Well, the Masoretic text, that is the Hebrew text, was divided into three categories. The law, which is the Pentateuch, the prophets, and the writings, which were sometimes referred to as the Psalms. 
And we see references to this threefold division in the New Testament. Jesus himself, before the ascension, was speaking to his disciples in Luke 24, and he said this, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. There's that threefold division. And what I want us to understand here this morning is that Jesus had the same Old Testament scriptures that we have before us today. Did you know that? Jesus had the same Old Testament that we have today. Well, the order of the books was a little bit different, and there were only 24. But that was because they combined books, like First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. Those were combined into single books. So you had Chronicles, Kings, Samuel, Ezra and Nehemiah. Those books were combined as well. And all of the minor prophets were combined into one book. These were the books, and these books alone were considered by the ancient Jews to be the true canon of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, refers specifically to the original 24 books as canon. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus, we see him rebuking the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and he says this, he says, Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And, and, and in this passage here, what we see is Jesus giving testimony to the veracity and the inspiration of the Hebrew Old Testament. We see him referring to the murder of Abel, which we see in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, right? The very beginning of the Bible. And then he refers to the murder of Zechariah, which is at the end of Chronicles. And between these two events, what we see is the entire Old Testament biblical history as it is written in the original Hebrew text. Now, you guys that know your Bibles, you're going to say, hold on a second, Chronicles is not at the end of the Bible. Chronicles is somewhere near the beginning of the Old Testament. And that's true in our Bible. But remember, the books of the Hebrew text, they were in a different order. In the original Hebrew text, the Old Testament ends with Chronicles. So Jesus is saying, he's saying from beginning to end, right? From A to Z, this is the Word of God. Indicating his confidence that the Hebrew Old Testament is the Word of God. It's the holy and inspired words of the Father himself. And that matches perfectly with the Old Testament that we have here today. But what about those apocryphal books? Where did they come from? Well, these are historical books that were written between the years of 400 B.C. 
and 1 AD, which is very often referred to as the intertestamental period. Right? We see the end of Malachi, 400 BC, and then the birth of Christ. During that time, God didn't speak, right? There were no prophets. God did not speak, but these books were written during that time. Now, the word apocrypha means hidden or hidden away. And to be honest with you, these books were hidden kind of for a good reason, to be honest with you. Many of the ancient Jews considered these books to be theologically suspicious. They weren't sure. Now, around 200 B.C., the prevailing language of the day was Greek. And in an effort to make the scriptures more accessible to the masses, scholars decided to translate the original Hebrew into Greek. And the translation became known as the Septuagint. You may have heard that term before, the Septuagint. It means 70, because it said that there were 70 scribes that took 70 days to do the translation. I'm not sure if that's actually true, but that's what they say. But this translation from the Hebrew Old Testament original text to Greek gained popularity. And it was used because it was accessible and it was very readable for the people at that time. However, at some later date, later, the apocryphal books were added. They were never in the original Hebrew text. They were never in the original Septuagint either. They were added later. But the question really remains, why do we as Protestants not accept the books of the Apocrypha as Scripture? Well, there are several reasons. And we alluded to the fact that Jesus recognized just the Hebrew Old Testament as the canon of Scripture, right? He referred to its completeness. We also have to take, fact, take note of the fact that there was no disagreement among the Christians of that time. There was no dispute over the canon. Nowhere do we see any evidence of debate over the extent of the canon. And this included the Jewish leaders of the time, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. They all agreed on the Old Testament canon as being the original Hebrew text. Also, Jesus and the New Testament writers, they quoted various parts of the Old Testament scripture as divinely authoritative. 295 times they quoted the Old Testament as being divinely authoritative. Not once. Not once. Never do they quote from the book of Apocrypha or any other book for that matter, as divinely authoritative. No other writings have been confirmed to be God-breathed. That established Old Testament canon, that Hebrew text, no more, no less, was to be taken as God's very word. And to be honest with you, there are a number of instances where the writings of the Apocrypha contradict what we know to be the true gospel. There's passages in the Apocrypha that teach salvation by works, right? Faith plus 
works. You got to do stuff. But we know that that flies in the face of the gospel that is preached throughout the New Testament by the apostles. We know that it's salvation by faith and faith alone. Bottom line, the books of the Apocrypha should not be regarded as the canon, a part of the canon of Scripture. Actually, the Catholic Church didn't ratify them as part of their canon until 1546 at the Council of Trent. And only then, the Catholic Church was using them to refute the teachings of Martin Luther and the other reformers that were gaining traction in the spread of the Reformation. And they used those books because the Apocrypha contained support for the Catholic teachings of praying to the dead and justification of faith by works, which, as we said, contradicts the true gospel. So we can be confident that nothing has been added to or left out of the Old Testament canon of Scripture as we see it before us here today. But what of the New Testament? How can we be sure nothing's been left out of it? Or are there any writings that don't belong? Well, let's consider that for a moment. Now, the development of the New Testament canon begins with the writings of the apostles. It is primarily the apostles, the original 12, who were given the ability from the Holy Spirit to recall accurately the words and deeds of Jesus and to interpret them for future generations, for us. Jesus promised this in John chapter 14, where he told them, and I'm reading for the English Standard Version here today, so you have to forgive me. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So it is the Holy Spirit that would continue the work of Jesus in that they were taught by the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit also allowed them to supernaturally remember all the words and deeds of Jesus. And this was not just for their benefit. No, this was so that they could write them down. So that all the words and teachings of Jesus could be stored in this canon. Jesus took it a step further when he told his disciples in John 16, when the Spirit of God comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the work of the Holy Spirit was to open the eyes of the disciples to the truth and write it down. And that work continues today in that it is the work of the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to the truth of Scripture. 
as recorded by the apostles. So these, these verses here, these promises that Jesus made to the disciples, they indicate the importance of apostolic authorship. Apostolic authorship. This is one of the main criteria when considering a writing as inspired or God-breathed. If it is inspired, it is God-breathed, it is worthy to be included in the canon of the New Testament. Apostolic authorship or, or blessing and authentication by an apostle. For instance, for instance, Mark, we know, was not an apostle. He was not original, one of the original twelve. But it's well known that he was a close and constant companion of Peter. He was Peter's scribe. And it's well documented that Peter passed on reports of the words and deeds of Jesus to Mark his scribe, his writer. Similarly, Luke was not an apostle. However, he traveled extensively with Paul. So this gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts, because Luke wrote both of those, those both received apostolic endorsement and authority from Paul as a trustworthy record of the gospel. But, you know, if, if, you're, if you're really on top of things, you're going to say, hold on a second, hold on. Because Paul was not one of the original apostles, right? He wasn't one of the original 12. So he was not among that group that Jesus was talking to when he promised the Holy Spirit. That's true. But listen to what Peter says about Paul's writings in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So, here, Peter's making a, a couple of very important points. First, he says that some of the things that Paul writes are kind of challenging to understand. Aren't you glad it's not just you? And it's not just me, right? I mean, even Peter sometimes struggle to fully understand what Paul was saying. Some of his writings can be difficult. And, and, second point, these things can be twisted, right? And we talked some about that last week, the fact that there are people, false teachers, twisting the Scriptures. You know, just because someone quotes Scripture, that doesn't mean necessarily that they are preaching the truth. False teachers are going to twist the words to fit their interpretation. That's why we must, we must, as the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17, we should be examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Don't just take someone's word for it. Don't just take my word for it. 
investigate it for yourself. Get into the Word. Know the truth. The Holy Spirit will guide you into the truth. But more importantly for our discussion today, Peter makes the point that Paul's writings, the epistles that we see in our New Testament, they are ranked among the Scriptures. They are on the same par with the rest of the inspired words of God. Scriptures. That's what he refers to them as. Scriptures. That's a term that, as Clark puts it in his commentary, applied to those writings which are divinely inspired and to those only. So Paul's writings are worthy of the title Scriptures and worthy of inclusion into the canon of the New Testament. They are inspired. They are God-breathed. So when we consider apostolic authorship or apostolic authentication, we've covered almost all of the New Testament as we see it today. Basically what we're left with is Hebrews and Jude. Now, Hebrews was thought to be written by Paul, but there is some dispute about that. So how is it included in the canon of the New Testament? Quite honestly, it is included by virtue of its intrinsic value. The early Christians were able to see the glory of Christ shining through the pages. It was clear to them. They knew it. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It was crystal clear to the early church that this was the voice of God himself. Hebrews is in. Jude. Jude was accepted by virtue of the author's connection with James and the fact that eh, he was the brother of Jesus. So the question becomes, should any additional writings be added to this New Testament that we see? Well, I think that Hebrews chapter 1 makes it clear. In verses 1 and 2, we read, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And what we see here is the writer of Hebrews making this, this contrast between God speaking in the past through the prophets, which is clearly the Old Testament, and... God speaking through his son in these last days. Basically what that tells us is that God's word brought to us by his son, that final prophet, is the culmination of his teaching for all of mankind. No more should be expected. This is his greatest and final revelation to mankind. Jesus is the final prophet. This is the final record of everything God wants us to know about life, death, and eternity. And what else is there? A similar inference may be drawn from the apostles, Apostle John's writings in the book of Revelation. In chapter 22, he says this. And actually, this is coming from Jesus himself. He says, 
I warn every, anyone, everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. Now, clearly, this is an overt reference to this particular book, right? The book of Revelation. However, friends, it is no mistake that this comes at the very end of the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, the entirety of Scripture. Thus, we can infer that this is to be applied to all of Scripture. All of Scripture. We should have no more Scripture added to what we already have in this book. Now, with that in mind, I, I must comment briefly on any religion, or more appropriately, I should say, any cult, that has their own book, claiming to be divinely revealed. If you see that, run. Get out of there. Especially if they use the Bible and their own book. I think of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. See, cults like that claim to have a better and a newer revelation. One that explains the Bible. We need to explain it to you. Because they need to twist the gospel. They need to twist the truth into a gospel that fits their wants and fits their desires. Friends, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. In this book that we have is the sum total of God's word to mankind. It is complete. We've looked at the evidence and we can be confident that these 66 books that we see before us today are the holy and inspired word of God. No more and no less. But there's one other truth that should boost our confidence to the point of surety. Stay with me. See, we've done a lot of study and we've taken a lot of time to understand the nature of God, right? We spent a lot of time in our previous series understanding the nature of God. And we've learned that God is good, right? God is good. And we've experienced His goodness. God is perfectly good. And He is good to us. Amen? And God is faithful. God is faithful. Amen? Is there any possibility that a good and faithful God would leave anything out of His revelation to us? Or would a good and faithful God, is there any possibility he would allow anything into his revelation that wasn't meant to be there? Friends, the answer is, is no and no. God loves us and he wants us to know about him and his plan of redemption for a lost world. Have you placed your trust in this book? Because you can. 
In this world in which it is almost impossible to find the truth, you can find the truth right here. Right here. When Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17, he prayed to the Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Have you read this book? If you haven't, I beg that you would do it. It will change your life. In this book, the 66 books of the Bible that we have today is the truth, and friends, it is the complete Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and uh, praise you and thank you so much for the way that you've revealed yourself to us. We thank you, Lord, that you love us, you care for us, and you have given us a complete word from you. Thank you, Lord. And I pray that we would be a people that would, that would have an appetite for your word and devour it because it is life and it brings life. We thank you for it and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.